text uh, for tonight is Ephesians 5. We'll pull from Genesis 2, which this text does as well. So follow along as I read from Ephesians 5. Uh, by the way, if you get angry at me in the midst of the sermon, please don't leave. Stay here till the end, and then you can get angry at me. Okay. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we have before us today uh, good but hard words. Uh, Be gracious to teach us these good but hard things from your word. Press them into reality in our hearts. Help us to see you in all your goodness. pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Came across an article this morning, maybe some of you saw it, and it always makes me very happy when I find a story that fits perfectly into that day's sermon. Um, It's about a man named uh, Remus, Mr. Remus was married in 2003, and the story was about his lawsuit. He's suing his photographer. It seems that uh, in 2003, when the the wedding ceremony was held, the photographers failed to record the last 15 minutes of the reception, which would include the cutting of the cake and the throwing of the bouquet. And this was such an important day to him that uh, he decided to sue his photographer. $4,100 for uh, the cost that he had to pay for the photographer. And then an additional $48,000, because he intends to use that money to recreate in its entirety the wedding day. Now, that sounds perhaps a bit strange, but what's really sad is he and his wife are divorced. Um, And he he writes, uh, we are very much happy with the wedding event and would like to have it documented for eternity for us and our families. Uh, And I can understand that, although I would never go through my wedding pictures again. Ugh. Great wedding day, but I don't ever want to be photographed that much the rest of my life. Um, They're divorced. She's actually moved back across the world. She's from another country. And uh, he has no idea where she's living. But he's trying his best to recreate his wedding day. I find it a very sad story. And I think it reflects a strange reality uh, about marriage, the way we think about marriage today. Uh, We spend much more time and energy thinking about getting married than we do about actually being married. I see this often as I do premarital counseling. It's my job in premarital counseling to get couples to think about marriage instead of just the wedding. Because the wedding is great, and you look forward to the wedding, and you're excited about the wedding. You spend all this time and money on the wedding. It's the easiest part of being married. You walk down the aisle, you forget everything. Someone else does the whole ceremony, you leave, and then, you know what? You don't know anything about marriage. Uh, And you think it's going to be easy. And what happens often is that couples are unprepared for the realities, the relational realities of marriage. 
Because something really strange happens when you get married. Everything, usually, everything's pretty easy and natural when you're engaged. If you will, you're running off this potent emotional love. And this is going to sound bad. It slowly transforms over the first year of your marriage. You still love each other, but it's different. And in fact, I would say that if you loved each other that in the same way the whole time, you would probably die a very early death. You don't eat, you don't sleep, you neglect others. You just can't live that way your whole life as a responsible human being. Um, but these new relational realities bring all kinds of difficulties into your life. Uh, you think you know how to love someone. That's natural. It's like falling in love. And then you begin to realize it's actually not really easy to love someone. Something is being lost in translation. Um, cynics see this and say, they see it a mile away and say, of course this is going to happen. Uh, romantics never see this coming. They think love is easy and natural. And they're always shocked. But whether you're a romantic or a cynic, um, if you're not prepared uh, for this, these relational dynamics, uh, your marriage will suffer. Uh, your relationship will suffer. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is take a close inspection of the biblical ideal of marriage. And I think you're going to see there both its real romantic possibilities. Uh, you may get the impression that I, I'm poo-pooing the romantic aspects of marriage. Um, because I'm a cynic. Yeah, I'm a cynic. Uh, but I'm not poo-pooing the romantic aspects of marriage. In fact, I would say Scripture blows our minds regarding the romantic possibilities of what it's supposed to be like. But it also deals really honestly with the relational difficulties. It does both. And I think we have to hold those things in tension. So when we study uh, the biblical ideal of marriage, we see uh, that embracing God's design for marriage, this is the outline if you have the outline, rescues us from destructive approaches to marriage or destructive patterns in marriage. And it produces an intimacy that you can hardly imagine. It's a very long main point, but you'll figure it out as we go. So... uh, we're going to talk about God's design for marriage and, and under three headings. That it requires very hard things of us. Biblical marriage requires very hard things of us. All of us. It rescues us from us. And lastly, it reflects redemptive realities. And I'll explain each of these. So, uh, A proviso. I've already made one. This might make some of you angry. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make you angry. Um, I'm trying to help you have healthy marriages someday. I'm trying to save you from pain, lots of pain. Some of you have seen it in your own families. You know what it's like. I'm trying to save you from that kind of pain. Um, But the proviso is I can't say everything about marriage that needs to be said, not even in this passage. I'm just sketching the top. Some of the the hardest things are the ones I'm going to jump on. It's not because I like to say hard things to you, but you have to hear them. Um, I'm just sketching it out and, and telling you, in short, if you're a Christian and you intend to have a Christian marriage, it's going to focus on some of these realities. Okay, So the first thing uh, that we see in our text, right off the bat with Paul, uh, is that it requires hard things of us. And I just need to go ahead and dismiss the notion that good things are easy. I think we've got this idea in our culture that good things should be easy. It's not true. I think you know and you're learning that most good things you have to work hard for. And marriage is no different. And uh, the reality is what Paul is calling us here to in verse 22 and following wives and husbands, it's always been hard. There was never a day in human history where this was easy for anyone. Uh, It's particularly hard today. 
It's hard to even hear this today. I understand that, ladies. So um, the first thing that's required is a willing submission. And uh, let me get through this before you get too angry. Willing submission in verses 22 to 24. First of all, note, you can't because it's not up there. But in uh, verse 21, uh, Paul basically says, I can read it. What am I talking about? I have a Bible in front of me. Uh, submit to one another out of reverence. The whole context is about mutual submission within the body of Christ. Believers are called to submit to one another. Uh, none of us are exempt from having to submit to someone. It's in that context then that Paul goes on to speak to wives. And he basically says, you too. In fact, he's not rubbing it in. It's really easy to look and say, wives, submit to your husbands. But really, in, in the Greek, the word submit's not even in verse 22. He's not singling wives out. The context carries over. Mutual submission. Wives, you to your husbands, and so on. So you're not being singled out. Um, nor um, is this idea of submission one that's meant to do violence to your will. The very verb tense being used for submission is this tense that means it's something that you willingly enter into. You're doing it. You're not being pressed into doing it. You're not being forced into doing it. If you will, you're not working against the grain of your volition. You're working with the grain of your volition. This is something that you're willing and desirous of doing in one particular case. And this is important, too. Perhaps some of you grew up in a church tradition. My wife did, where women heard this all the time. Wives submit. And you get the impression that... Women are second-class citizens, and their place is beneath the foot of every man. And the idea that wives should be submissive to every man, and that's a bunch of baloney. Ladies, you only call it to submit to two people in the entire universe. Jesus, like everybody else, and your husband. No other man has authority over you. And frankly, you don't have to do those things. Um, no one's making you. Can't make you. That would be unbiblical. You have to willingly enter into it. And so the challenge for you, ladies, is to find that one man, one man, that you would gladly submit to. It, I think it's possible. I know it's hard. I have a daughter. <laughs> um, I have sisters. I've talked to you. I can understand. Um, and I understand a lot of the cultural baggage that goes with this. Um, but it, this is not a statement that you're somehow a less competent human being. Uh, and we'll talk about this as we go on. Uh, Jesus does this. Jesus submits. Uh, men, we have to submit as well. So uh, the fact that you're being called to submit doesn't mean you're any less important, any less valuable. Uh, you're being called into a functional reality within one particular relationship, that of marriage. Genesis 2 talks about this. Uh, Men are a mess. We need help. And the way God designed this relationship is for you to come and help. And uh, you may be thinking, I don't want to be a helper. Well, I don't care if you run a Fortune 500 company. Go do it. But you have to help your husband. That's the picture, the biblical reality here. Uh, he needs help. And you need to be willing and glad to enter into a relationship where you're willing to help him. It's easy to find this, this, this uh, particularly demeaning. I don't think it's necessarily demeaning. I know it's difficult. It's difficult for lots of reasons. Uh, one, we have a patriarchal paternal history. You feel like you've had your face stuck in it for a long time. You want to react against that? I understand. Um, 
But more to the heart of the matter is we're all desirous of being autonomous, independent individuals. We want to be in charge. We don't want to bend ourselves to another, which is what this is being, calling you to do. You're, you're being called to bend yourself to someone else. Men, you're going to get this in a minute. Um, and way back in Genesis 3, we looked at this a long time ago, early in the semester, God basically says to the women, uh, says to Eve, uh, this is going to be really hard for you because actually your natural inclination is going to try to be to control him and make him serve you. So this is hard. I know it's hard. Uh, and yet uh, this is what Paul and God are calling us to. It's also particularly hard if you choose the wrong kind of guy. If you don't trust a guy you can respect, a guy you trust has your best interest in mind, then of course you're going to struggle to um, trust him uh, with yourself and to submit to him. Okay, moving on. Gentlemen, now's your turn. My goal is to have all of you angry at me. Frankly, just a bunch of girls angry at me, that's terrible. That would, that would be the worst possible nightmare. If the guys are angry at me as well, that'd be great. And I could play off each other and I could disappear. <laughs> so uh, men are called, in verse 25, husbands to love your wives. And um, following on what has just been said to wives a couple times in verse 23 to 24, you would expect Paul to say, husbands, this is the logic of the text, it seems, rule over your wives... Or something like that. Rule your wives wisely. Um, be the head of your wife. Or some such thing. One's being called to submit. You would assume the other one's being called to rule. And that is not what Paul says. Instead, Paul says three times one thing. Love. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wife. Uh, verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives. Verse 33. Let each of you... Each one of you love his wife. Three times. Love your wife. Love your wife. Love your wife. Actually, nowhere in Scripture, there's not one place where a man is called to exercise authority over his wife. There are places where women are called to submit. But nowhere is the man told to exercise authority. I think God's wise enough to know the kind of jerks we can be. And says, you don't, you don't need that. Your tendency is already to misunderstand that. Instead, what you need to know, gentlemen, is that you need to love your wife. And uh, let me take you inside a married man's mind. Scary place. A married man um, would hear this and say, well, I love my wife. Of course I love her. I married her. And uh, he would be shocked to hear his wife question that because uh, her assumption of love looks a little bit more like verses 25 through 27, where Christ gives himself for her, that he might sanctify her, cleanse her, that she, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. In other words, we have a picture of love here that pursues, that continues to work and pursue. Uh, your average man in marriage, I'm saying average, says, I married her. I'm committed. We're, that's it. I love her. Isn't it clear that I love you? I married you. And she's thinking, I've not seen this in the last couple of years. Where's the pursuit? Uh, this is the kind of love you're being called to, gentlemen. A love that pursues. Faithfully pursues. Verse 28 and 29. Uh, verse 28, we see that uh, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That sounds selfish. We'll get to that in a minute. He who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, this is the... Um, 
evoking Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and his mother that hold fast his wife, thou shall become one flesh. Marriage is of such an intimate reality that when you're married, you, in God's eyes, you are one body. And what men are being called to in, the, in a relationship of marriage is to so love their wives so well that they don't even think about themselves. To love you well is to love me. I don't have to think about taking care of myself, my time, my needs, my pleasures, my desires. I'll be taken care of if I love my wife. And he faithfully, persistently pursues, cherishes, nourishes, are the words that are used here in 29, nourishes and cherishes her. I don't know any woman that doesn't want that. Interesting enough, I just uh, maybe some of you read this. It was the uh, beautiful eulogy written by Mona Simpson. It's uh, it was Steve Jobs' sister, um, and she writes in the uh, she writes in his eulogy that uh, she grew up a single child of an uh, unmarried mother, and uh, she had a long hope that her father uh, would be the person that would love her, and. Um, was always making excuses for the fact that he moved away and never listed his number and didn't return their mail. And uh, she's basically admits, why can't I find this? Um, she basically admits in the in the eulogy even that um, as a as she's a well known feminist that uh, all her life she looked for a guy to love her, a man that would love her and could love her. And she did find that person. It was her brother. That's why it's, it's a beautiful eulogy. Um, women, most of you want to be loved this way. You may be deeply cynical about the possibility that might happen. Perhaps you have enough emotional uh, brokenness uh, from previous relationships or your parents' relationships that you have good reason to be cynical. But I think you actually do desire something like this. To be pursued, to be loved uh, by a man who loves you so much that he gives little thought to himself but cares for you above all other things. Gentlemen, uh, I don't have to ask the needless question, but I'll ask it. Uh, Are you that kind of man now? Um, More likely than not, you've spent the the first 20 years of your life cherishing and nourishing yourself. And uh, I'm not beating up on you. Uh, Marriage is something you have to grow into. But this is God's design and call for you, that uh, you um, would become the kind of man uh, that gives first thought to his wife and cares for her and nourishes her. And you can do that only when you're secure enough knowing that she trusts you and God has you, that God is rich enough in his resources to take care of you. Therefore, you don't have to be concerned about you. Um, so, I'm going to sum this section up and move on. Uh, just to be clear about this. Marriage is hard work. It's hard. It's hard. If it's going to be good, it has to be hard. Okay? If it's going to be good, it has to be hard. Uh, my sister-in-law recently got married. Uh, if I'm on the far end of the cynical scale, she's on the far end of the romantic scale. Um, you know, as a 16-year-old, she was singing... Disney songs in her bedroom or whatever. And uh, thankfully she married a, 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 an American, so there are now two Americans in this Russian family, and I'm very happy. Well, she recently went off with her um, with her, her new husband. They're both beautiful, by the way, like model beautiful. Uh, they're so chummy and lovey and 
it's sort of sickening, but it's great. Anyway, they, they go off to meet his family, which is deeply broken uh, in all kinds of ways, uh, in California. This is extended family. And she came back and called laughing, but also shocked. She's like, do you know how many people I asked me? She's like 24, and it looks like she's 22. Do you know how many people asked me if this was my first marriage? Everyone assumed this was like my second or third marriage. I'm like 24. And uh, in our culture today, uh, we have very little expectation of the, for the goodness and permanency of marriage. Uh, first marriages are being called starter marriages today in our culture. You know, on the idea of a starter home, you just sort of get in the door with the plan being that later you'll trade up. You know, you've got to get in the door, learn about marriage, and move up when you learn more about yourself. Um, the problem with that is you leave that marriage the same selfish person you were before with a propensity to try to bend the other person to your will in the ways. Instead of doing what this text says, it's your responsibility, wives, husbands, to bend your very being and will to, for the sake of the good of the other person. That's hard. That's difficult. I would say it's uh, well nigh impossible. Uh, apart from God working in your life. Uh, this might sound like death <laughs> uh, to some of you. And um, in some ways it is. Uh, but it's good. It's good. And I think uh, we see in our text as we go on, and I have to flush this out for you. It's not necessarily clear from the text. It's clear from experience that in giving us these difficult requirements, God is actually rescuing us from ourselves. Uh, I could talk about this in a couple different ways. God gives marriage to us to continue to sanctify us. He does the same thing with single people. So if you're going to be single your whole life, you're not a second class citizen, go listen to the sermon on singleness. But marriage does show you a lot of stuff in your life and show you how you need to grow up and mature. It's a means by which God matures you. As I'll argue later, a means by which he continues to beautify you to be more like Jesus. But there's another sense in which I think these requirements rescue us from us. It's our natural uh, inclination uh, to be, all of us, somewhat romantic um, about how love should work, even the most cynical guy. And uh, it's like this, uh, and this is what I'm calling unrealistic romantic notions. We need to be rescued from our unrealistic romantic notions. One in particular, I'm not bashing romantic stuff, ladies, or the few guys here that listen to the, the Righteous Brothers or something. What is, what's romantic? I don't know what guys will listen to. I have no idea. Um, the assumption here that I'm talking about, the notion is that um, love is natural and easy. And it just sort of has its own momentum. And that it communicates easily to the other person. That you just naturally know how to express it. And they will pick it up and receive it gladly. And that is not true. It might be true for a few people. A few couples. For most of us, it's not true because of the diversity of personalities between husband and wife and the genders. Um, so uh, I'll take you briefly into my life, my marriage, my home. Uh, we were like any other couple of newlyweds. We were happy. We'd just gotten back from our Cancun vacation. It was wonderful. Then I got strep throat. That wasn't nice. But um, I was really sick. Um, probably about five weeks into our marriage, uh, it sort of came to a head, and by it I mean the way we wake up. Uh, I am, I am, apart from God's grace, a miserable person. God is really good to me, and um, 
Yeah, so with God's grace, I'm a more cheerful, loving person. I wake up a terrible human being. I do. I wake up a terrible human being. Uh, and so I've known this for years, and my routine has been to get up, flee humanity, take a shower, pound three or four cups of coffee. Uh, for one year, when I lived with people really closely, I read 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter, because I knew I had to love them, and I didn't know how to do it. It's like, maybe it'll just sink into my head. Um, my wife, on the other hand, wakes up, and they're like, it's like zippity-doo-dah. There are birds and butterflies and smiles and happiness, and I love you. And I'm like, go away. Leave me alone. You don't understand. And she didn't understand. And you would think, naturally, like, I'd probably been giving off, like, warning signs, slow sirens over the weeks. She should be picking up that loving me means giving me distance so I don't snap or... Uh, you know, hurt your feelings. She didn't hear it. And she had been trying to communicate to me her love, and I wasn't picking up on it. It's just sort of a, sort of a simple picture that it does not always communicate. And, uh, and here in our text, um, uh, we see something. In verse 33, Paul says, Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And it sort of boils down to this. Again, there are exceptions to the norm. This is the norm. Guys want to be respected. Ladies, guys want to be respected. And you're thinking, well, they don't deserve it. Don't marry that guy. Uh, Find a guy you can respect. And then respect him. Uh, Encourage him. Respect him. And and, and the way guys often mix this up is we think women want respect. So, you know, the example would be you come home and instead of giving your wife a big hug and a kiss and bouquet of flowers, you say, how was work today? Well, I did this. Oh, it's saying you clean the house. Good job. Well done. All right. See you later. Um, that's not the way you do it. Another example is, and guys tend to do this even in dating, you're with your guy friends and, um, you know, you've got the, the perfect girlfriend. She's wonderful. She's beautiful. And they're sort of beating you up about it and you're happy like, Dude, what was she thinking? She's great. She's smart. She's beautiful. She's got a great personality. What's she doing with you? And, of course, the guy would be like, yeah, no, it's great, isn't it? Because it's a symbol of respect for us that we have this girl. It's a wonderful thing. Uh, we feel, and the guys know it, too, like, wow, you pulled this off. Good job. And uh, meanwhile, if a girl heard that about herself, she would be thinking, I'm being objectified. I... Uh, I'm just something on his arm. What is this? Meanwhile, the guy's like, this is, this is wonderful because he's getting respect. Um, ladies, um, ladies want to be loved. And um, not just loved with I'll marry you, but the kind of loving pursuit uh, that we see evidenced in, in this text here. Um, good example of some of these things are in uh, the, the Diary of Adam and Eve. This was written by Mark Twain. It's exceptionally cynical. So, if you will, he goes back and writes the Eden story from his own perspective. And this is day one from Adam's diary. Uh, this is wickedly funny and altogether blasphemous, the whole thing. Um, but I'm using it to make a point. Day one, Monday. This new creature with the long hair is a good deal in the way. It's always hanging around and following me about. I don't like this. I'm not used to company. I wish it would stay with the other animals. Collie today, wind coming from the east, think it might rain. We, 
We, we think it might rain? Where did I get that word? Oh, I remember now. That new creature uses it. And, and the story goes on and continues to tell how he wants to be respected and he wants to be left alone. doesn't want to be pursued. She's a pursuer. She's expressing love the way she wants to receive it, which is to pursue. And he's just sort of annoyed by this and doesn't know how to pursue his wife. Uh, biblical wisdom is telling us here that we have to do the hard thing, which is to change our natural inclination and be willing to meet the other person where they, where they need to feel loved. Men need to be respected. Women need to be pursued and loved. There are exceptions. This is a general case. Um, so uh, this biblical ideal uh, rescues us from uh, unrealistic romantic notions. I'm going to move really quickly through the last couple things I'm dragging on. It also uh, rescues us from cynicism. A cynicism that sort of lives in the conditionality of, hey, when you do your part, I'll do my part. When you start being respectful, I'll respect you. And when you start loving me, or respecting me, I'll love you. It can easily in marriage devolve into this... When you do your part, I'll love you. And it actually makes sort of sense because if someone's not respecting you, it's really hard to pursue them. If someone's not pursuing you, it's really hard to respect them. It becomes this nasty cycle. And this is where you get the irreconcilable differences or we just drifted apart. And that's very cynical. It's the, you're going to have to do this first. And Paul doesn't give us that option. There's no conditionality here. It's, it's plain. It's hard. You've got to do this. I mean, you don't have to do this. You can get married. You can choose not to get married, or you can choose to have a bad marriage. But if you want to have a good marriage, where you feel cherished and respected and loved, then you got to do this. So um, these things rescue us from ourselves. And lastly, uh, a biblical marriage reflects redemptive realities. And here's where we do some hard, heady theology. No one left. That's good. Um, it's really beautiful, and I, and I think it's significant for marriage. We read Genesis 2 because what we're reading here in Ephesians 5 reflects creational realities. God made us in a certain way. Uh, This continues that thought. But what we see here at the end of chapter 5 is the marriage relationship between man and woman, when it's operating as it should, cherishing the other and loving them well, reflects divine realities and mysteries. If you will, a good biblical marriage reflects the gospel. If you will, it's the snow globe, you know, the... The beautiful little snow globe that encapsulates the town. It's the snow globe of the gospel. It, it shows off uh, to all who are willing to look the beautiful mystery of God's love for his people. And we see this in the, in the same ways in which God requires difficult things of you. Uh, first, in the son's willing submission. Wives, you're called to submit. I say wives. There are no wives here. Uh, ladies, when you're wives, <laughs> you're called to submit. It's nothing that Jesus hasn't done. Uh, you're called to submit like the church in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ. Uh, if you're part of God's people, you claim to be a Christian, you are supposed to be submitting to Christ. He is your Lord. Um, so you're doing this already, hopefully. Um, but that's not it. That's not all of it. The reality is Jesus has willingly submitted of his own sake for your good. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Christ's willing subjection. He's willing to subject himself for a time for the work of redeeming you. And uh, this language in Genesis 2 about uh, your being a helper, it could be demeaning. 
you know God's called a helper? He actually takes the name to himself. In uh, John 14, Jesus basically telling his disciples, I'm going to leave, and the Father will send you another helper. In other words, there are two people in the Trinity, two people of the Godhead that are helpers. Jesus comes and says, I am a helper. I am here to submit to help you. And the third person of the Trinity, and these are not you know, any less in power and glory. They're all uh, divine persons full of splendor and glory. He is going to come as your helper. His chief do- job is to help and encourage you. God is not calling you to do anything that he hasn't done himself willingly and gladly for you. This is what God does for you. He's willing to submit for your good. Also, we see the son's steadfast, sanctifying love. We see this in verses 25 through 27. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself for her. He sacrificed himself for her. To cleanse her by the washing with the word that he might present her the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. Um, Jesus gave himself sacrificially for a bride that was not faithful and far from perfect. And uh, didn't wait to see how she would shape up afterwards, but continued to persevere with her, to sanctify her, to, according to this text, bring her to the full measure of beauty. Uh, one of the great things about officiating weddings is to see, you know, you sort of just have to tell bridesmaids this, uh, brides this, you will never look better than your wedding day. It's a wonderful privilege to see women about as beautiful as they'll ever be. You get to be a part, and I don't say that because I'm some kind of pervert. No, it's, it's because it's a beautiful thing to see this beautiful bride brought forward uh, to marry her husband and see them pledge themselves to one another. And, and yet God who knows all our imperfections, and on the day of your wedding, you'll know every single one of them. Ladies, you'll be acutely aware of everything. You'll spend all this time fretting over it and worrying about this tiny little spot here and the fact that my hair is not right there. Most of you, some of you won't. Thank goodness, I hope you don't. Because you'll be beautiful. Christ is dedicated to your utter beautification. He's going to make you utterly beautiful. He loves you so much, he will persevere with you through all your unfaithfulness to make you like himself. He is a steadfast lover. Who will make you beautiful? So uh, it reflects not only uh, Christ's willing submission and His love, but lastly, uh, the Son's one body. And this is a shocking thing. It might not be shocking to you, but it's in verse 30. Um, we are members of His body. And what's going on here is Paul is doing some heavy theologizing. He's going back to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is about a man and a woman getting married. And he talks about how the man's going to leave his family and marry this woman. They'll become one flesh. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, you know what that's all about? Yeah, it's about marriage. It's about Jesus and his church. He says in verse 30, we are members of his body. Then in verse 32, this mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Now, he's not denying Genesis 2 is about earthly marriage between a man and a wife. But he's saying this. The union, the one flesh union between a man and a wife reflects a greater reality, the reality of Jesus and his church. Most of you labor under the impression that Jesus sort of loves you, if you're good, on certain days. If you trust in Jesus, this is the reality. He considers you as the most intimate bride. 
That's the language he uses for his people. The bride. You are his bride. Gentlemen, I don't know how you're going to think about this, but you've got to think about this. Uh, Jesus loves you so much that he wants you intimately, deeply connected. He's not ashamed of you. Uh, he knows everything that's going on in your life. This is the nature of justification. He takes your sin. He grants you his righteousness. He sees you as perfect, and he wants you close. How close? One body close. We're talking about the greatest intimacy that exists. Uh, stepping back, thinking big theologically. This is way back at the beginning of the semester. Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling together in perfect unity. No sin, no distance. Perfect vulnerability, perfect openness, perfect love. That's the nature of the reality of the relationship in the Godhead. And you know what they do? They bring you into the middle of it. That's what's going on here. God wants to bring His people, the bride, into the midst of that beautiful reality. It should astound you. It should astound you. That's how much God loves you. That's how God sees you. And they'll step back. That's, that's the big picture. Your marriage is supposed to look like that. Your marriage is supposed to show people that kind of reality. This is how much God loves his people. Look at my marriage. I, I know it's a mess. I, I know we you know, snicker, say we, we misbehave sometimes. We're a little cross with each other. But, in, but can't you see how much I love my wife that I would die for her? And give everything. In fact, I do give everything for her all the time. And can't you see that I love my husband and I submit to him? Not because I don't have a spine, but because I respect him. Because he lays down his life for me. Can't you see the gospel in our relationship? Some of you, of course, may not have seen a marriage like that. Some of you probably have. You know what I'm talking about. And it's a beautiful thing. I didn't. My, my folks were probably like most folks. They had a good marriage. Um, but not that kind of marriage. Uh, but I was privileged to meet a man that does have that kind of marriage. Uh, I've told the story before. I hope I make it through. Um, uh, the pastor's name is Lowell Sykes. Um, when I met Lowell, he was probably 70. He's probably 80 now. And uh, when I met him, he was retiring from his pastorate. He had been a pastor for 50 years. Well, 45 years. And I asked him why I was retiring, because he was still in great shape. In fact, he challenged me the first day we met to a racquetball game. And I was warned never to play racquetball with a man. Uh, he's supposed to be vicious. He's <laughs> a little guy with glasses. Anyway, um, I asked him why I was retiring. He's like, I'm retiring, full, I'm retiring from ministry, even though I love the church and love to preach, because I want to take care of my wife. And I think everyone in the church knew what was going on, but I didn't, because I was new to the church. What's wrong with your wife? She has Alzheimer's. How bad is it? Oh, it's pretty bad. How bad's bad? Well, she can't see. She's blind. Is she responsive? Nope, she can't talk. And, uh, I mean, that sounds terrible. And um, this was ten years ago. She died uh, last month. And uh, at the point at which she died, she was completely unresponsive. She was basically a living vegetable. And yet, uh, for ten years, he, he gave his life for her. He laid it down for her. He pursued her and loved her well. Never with a hint of bitterness. Never once. And when I asked him about this ten years ago, because he was just a joyful guy, he was happy to retire to take care of his wife full time. Um, and I didn't quite ask, how can you do this? But he just went ahead and, and knew how strange and beautiful it was until he explained it. And he said a couple things, and two stick with me. Uh, she loved me and served me well for 50 years. Um, 
how can I not serve her in her hardest years? It was a, it was a heart of gratitude. Uh, she had loved him so well that he wanted to serve her. But then secondly, uh, he knew Jesus loved him. He knew Jesus had loved them both well and would continue to love them. And that this marriage relationship, even in this broken state of sadness, still in some way reflected the beauty of the gospel. And this man who had breathed in these truths uh, loved his wife well until uh, death did them part. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful intimacy. I don't, I don't wish that kind of a sad ending on any of you. It's, it's horrible. But I do hope and pray man, that you would love your wives like that. And wives that you would love your husbands like that. Okay? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you don't call us to things that uh, 